I'm Tavis Smiley. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. We're glad about it. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. You belong here. And we are glad to have you tuned in to Unapologetically Progressive Talk Radio. Uh, in this hour, historian Dr. Gerald Horn on the potential, the potential for present-day social movements and progressive politics to affect meaningful change in the ongoing fight to one day make America a nation as good as her promise. Dr. Horn, how are you? Good to have you on. Thank you for inviting me. It's my great honor to have you on. Thank you for the time. Let me let me start with this, and this is a, a formulation that I've wrestled with over the years and one that I've talked about in many presentations in this country and around the globe. And I want to just take your temperature on my formulation <laughs> And if we're right or if we agree on this, we can jump from there. And if not, we'll still jump from there. Uh, but I'm, <laughs> I'm pressing toward a particular question. Uh, but let me frame it this way. Uh, my friend Connie Rice says all the time and said last hour that you have to get the frame right. We've got to get our frame right. So I want to make sure we got our frame right to start this conversation. So it seems to me that movements uh, historically are very rare. We're talking about a real movement. Movements are very rare historically. That's my read. And it seems to me as well that what happens is that you uh, find yourself in a moment. If you're fortunate, that moment builds momentum. And if you're more fortunate, that momentum turns into a movement. That's how I see it. Moment. Every movement has a moment. And that moment, uh, again, turns into momentum. And that momentum can, in fact, become a movement. But movements are very rare. Uh, I, I start with that, again, trying to get our frame right, because it's it's going to be fascinating for us through this hour to interrogate whatever movements we think exist today uh, and determine whether or not we think these movements will have a long-term impact uh, into the future. Uh, but so I, I first, again, want to take your temperature on this notion of the movements that you actually see uh, in a contemporary moment. I, I'm not sure I see that many movements, but that's my read. You tell me. Well, I tend to agree, and I think that one of the basic reasons is that if you look at the experience in North America, many of the significant movements have been propelled in no small measure by global currents. Mm -hmm. That is to say, it's no accident that the anti-Jim Crow movement, the civil rights movement as we term it, was taking place simultaneously with the rising independence of nations in Africa, nations in the Caribbean, Washington found it difficult to pursue its spiteful, hateful policy of Jim Crow with the fact that they at the same time had to compete for the sentiments and well wishes of surging African and Caribbean nations. And so that creates momentum for the erosion of Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. And let me seize this opportunity to say that just the other day, one of the persons who symbolized that trajectory, speaking of Randall Robinson, yes. uh, died at the age of 81. Mm -hmm. That is to say, he was a relentless campaigner against apartheid and colonialism in Southern Africa. Uh, that was taking place at a time when we were pushing on this side of the Atlantic, and there was a certain kind of confluence mm -hmm. uh, between those two movements. And one of the problems we have today, to bring it full circle, is that many of our, quote, movements unquote, today, 
for whatever reason, haven't been able to link up with global currents. And I think that's one of the reasons why they may be enduring difficulty. Mm, there's, a lot, there's a lot to unpack there, and I'm looking forward to this hour. Let me say a quick word about Randall Robinson um, since you went there, and I'm happy to follow you on this. He did, in fact, pass away uh, a week ago tomorrow at the age of 81, last Friday. Uh, on our program on Monday, we did a tribute to Randall Robinson. I knew Randall well. Oh, good. Uh, I, I, I knew him well, traveled the world with him. And for those who did not hear our tribute, um, it apparently hit a nerve. I heard from his wife, Hazel, uh, and from his daughter, Kalia. Uh, and uh, they were just uh, very moved by the tribute. So I was, I'm glad to know that they were pleased with it. If you missed our tribute uh, to Randall Robinson on Monday, go to any of our socials, check out our podcast. But find the podcast. Uh, of our tribute to Randall Robinson that we broadcast on this program on Monday. I had some thoughts about Randall that I shared from a personal and political perspective, and then we uh, 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 tribute to, did a tribute to Randall in his own words. Altogether, I think it was nicely done, uh, and uh, more importantly, his, his wife and daughter think it was nicely done. So go to our platforms, check out the podcast of our tribute to Randall Robinson, which broadcast on this program, on this station, this past Monday. That said, one quick question before we jump forward. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm listening to you very very carefully, Dr. Horn, as I always do, and I heard you use this phrase a moment ago, and I, I, I know that you choose your words very carefully, so there must be something here that's worthy of interrogating, so let me try to interrogate it right now. And that is the phrase you used a moment ago, and you said the civil rights movement as we term it. The civil rights movement, as we term it, uh, that those last four words, I, I take it, were not a throwaway. Well, you are correct. Uh, I, I use the terms that people are familiar with in order to clue them in mm -hmm. into what I was talking about. But obviously, that term, that phrase, is a bit limited mm -hmm. to depict an anti-Jim Crow movement, to depict a Black Power movement to depict a movement for human rights, a movement for equity. But the civil rights movement will just have to suffice because that's the term that people are familiar with. Mm -hmm. And, and, and uh, let me just, let's keep going. I, I, I ain't scared. So let's just keep going here. <laughs> <laughs> since that term, since that term for you is so limiting, um, why do you think uh, number one, it persists? And number two, how should we be thinking about that era? I won't even call it civil rights movement. I take your point. How should we be thinking about that era more broadly? Well, as you know more than most, uh, there was a debate that during the time this movement was unfolding mm -hmm. as to what term should be used. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you know more than most. And Malcolm X felt that the term civil rights movement was a bit limiting. Mm -hmm. But as also you know, uh, this is a battle over history, and as the antics of Governor DeSantis in Florida and his acolytes tend to show, uh, battles about the past are very much about the present. Mm. And for various reasons, uh, the term civil rights movement has prevailed, and uh, it would be as if uh, there was a battle over whether we should be called Negroes. And uh, the terms black and African-American are prevailed, but uh, I, let's say I personally prefer the term Negro, hypothetically, and so I continue to use that term. I'm sure many of your audience would be thrown off by that. Mm -hmm. So uh, I try to use the terms that people are familiar with. Right. So two things you said just now, again, that uh, we need to unpack here. When we come forward, we'll come right to these two things. Number one, um, his notion about the battle over history. I want to uh, uh, probe uh, his thinking 
on what the battle over history is really about. I'm not naive in asking this question, but what is, to the mind of Dr. Gerald Horn, the battle over history really about? What are we fighting about here in this battle over history, or for that matter, who gets to write the history? And then, as you heard a moment ago, um, he uh, does not shy away from using the word Negro. Uh, and neither do I. I use it uh, oftentimes. I use Negro. I use Black American. I use African American. I use them for different points and to make uh, a different emphasis. Uh, uh, and I've been taking the task many times over the course of my career for even using the word Negro. Now I find myself in conversation with somebody who doesn't feel dissimilarly. And I want to take his temperature on why he is unafraid and, and to his point, prefers to use the word Negro oftentimes. A lot to talk about. It's going to be a fascinating hour as we move forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Interrogating your assumptions and expanding your inventory of ideas. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. If that notion were ever true, it's true in this particular conversation um, that our station and this program at our best uh, we are about challenging you to re-examine the assumptions you hold and helping you to expand your inventory of ideas. Both of those two things are bound to happen in this hour as we continue our conversation with esteemed historian and author, Dr. Gerald Horn. So uh, let's, go, let's go, Dr. Horn. Two things you said a moment ago that I want to, uh, again, just go right to. Uh, number one, um, this question of uh, this notion of the battle over history. I love how you put it. There's always a battle. Always has been, always will be a battle over history. And for that matter, who gets to write that history? But the the, the pointed question I want to ask you now is, to your mind, uh, Dr. Horn, what is that battle over history really, really about? I think it's a battle over the present and the future. I think that the ascending right-wing forces led by Governor DeSantis and the 45th U.S. president feel that if they can shape the past in a way they find amenable, uh, that gives them an advantage in terms of shaping the present and shaping the future. Uh, to the previous point, with regard to the question of the new N-word, mm-hmm. speaking of Negro, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a historian, so I spent a lot of time uh, reading about what black people were doing uh, in older times. And, of course, at one time, one of the struggles was about capitalizing the word Negro, uh, people realize that that term comes from the Spanish, the Spanish word for black, and we are speaking in English, and English has many so-called loan words. I mean, we use the term rendezvous mm-hmm. instead of encounter. We'll use the term chauffeur as opposed to driver. And so it's only in the past 60-odd years that the term Negro took on this negative baggage and was dis- discarded. I don't necessarily... Uh, dismiss uh, that struggle. Uh, actually, what I've been trying to do is have the word Negro substitute when we want to invoke the N-word. For example, if we want to describe Clarence Thomas of the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, rather than calling him the N-word, perhaps we can call him the Negro in order to uh, in order to evoke uh, a similar sentiment. But as I, if, I, if I'm hearing you correctly, though, um, you don't shy away from using it, uh, but you're using it uh, my words, not yours, you using it uh, in a punitive sense, in a pejorative sense? It depends. Yeah. I mean, you know, language is, is relative and contextual. Sure. So if I'm, you know, I have a book on Washington, D.C. coming out in a few days, mm-hmm. and a lot of the book deals with pre-1950 Washington. People were calling themselves Negroes. And so I'm, I'm quoting them 
And so I'm just showing them respect for using the term they use to describe themselves when I use the term Negro repeatedly in that text. To 2023, there's another relational and contextual meaning. For example, if we want to disparage uh, Clarence Thomas, we want to show that he's archaic and antiquated. And so therefore we use a word, Negro, to affix to him to show how archaic and antiquated his thinking is. Mm-hmm. Um, since we're in this in this ter- in this uh, territory and uh, traversing this terrain, let me let me just stay here for a second in this field. Um, what do you make of the fact that over the the decades, over the centuries, we have in fact um, we have or society has uh, changed the moniker by which we are addressed? Um, colored and Negro and black and Afro-American and African-American and who knows what will be tomorrow. But what, what do you just make of that as a historian? What do you make of that particular journey in how we are referred to or referred to ourselves? Well, I think it reflects the fact that our status is uncertain, uh, even today. Uh, and therefore, we're looking for a word that best describes and best depicts our present-day status. I think that if there ever came a time, and perhaps there will never come a time, when our status in North America is more certain and more fixed, then that struggle for a moniker, to use your term, would probably recede, Mm -hmm. might even disappear. Mm -hmm. Um, This phrase, um, uncertain status, unpack that for me. What, 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 What is so uncertain about our status in North America as you see it? Well, recall that at the time that we were escaping the status of enslavement Mm -hmm. in the 19th century and the 1860s, uh, President Lincoln simultaneously was trying to deport the goodly number of us, as the late great historian Lerone Bennett pointed out in his book, Forced Into Glory. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm afraid to say that if things keep going south, (laughs) then that sort of idea uh, perhaps may not reemerge, but there might be a a slow motion attempt to do away with the black population. That's why the book that I published last year has as part of the subtitle, The Roots of U.S. Fascism, Mm -hmm. uh, because that's what that could entail. So I'm I'm, I'm not as, as confident as some might be that uh, what used to be called the Negro question has been resolved for all time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. As a matter of fact, I uh, got in some trouble uh, some time ago for suggesting on a national television program that if things continue the way they are, it would not surprise me that we will see a movement in this country to once again uh, declare black people three-fifths of a person. Uh, I said that on a national television show, and all hell broke loose when I said that. Uh, and, and I, and I wasn't being tongue in cheek. I wasn't being snarky. I wasn't trying, it was not attempt an attempt at humor. Uh, I meant what I said. It is hard for me to watch the things that we are witnessing today. You mentioned DeSantis. There, there are other examples, Trump, there's a long list of examples and some, um, not getting the headlines, some, but I think are not getting headlines, but I think are far more sinister. Um, but it, it is, it's, it's clear to me that this country is headed in the wrong direction. It's clear to me that, uh, that this experiment in democracy, I don't call it a democracy. I call it an experiment in democracy. We've got a Madisonian framework for it, but it's an experiment in democracy. We are headed in the wrong direction. So when I made that comment on national television, 
I got all kind of pushback uh, and uh, even from, you know, uh, good white progressives who thought that comment was just a tad bit much. And yet I raised that because as I hear you now, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested as to your take on how might I phrase this on how close to the precipice you think we black folk in America are, how much more dangerous could things get for us um, in the nation that we live right now? Well, I'm surprised. Perhaps I should not be surprised. Perhaps it's naivete on my part to be surprised that you would get pushed back for using the three-fifths phrase. Because to me, that that's a, a mild assertion uh, in, in light of the fact that certainly we do not enjoy uh, full rights. Uh, otherwise, we would not be disproportionately cited on death row. Otherwise, we would not be disproportionately victims of hate crimes. Otherwise, we would not be disproportionately shot down by officers of the law. And so for people who consider themselves to be progressive, to object to invoking the phrase three-fifths, I have to say I'm taking it back, and perhaps we're worse off than I imagine. With regard to the second point that you raised, Certainly, if you look overseas, the news is not comforting. Uh, you see the rise of neo-fascists to power in Rome and Italy. Uh, Prime Minister Maloney on an explicitly anti-African platform. Mm -hmm. You see her comrades in neighboring Austria on the verge of, of seizing power. The alternative for Germany party in Germany uh, is surging with every election. And in order to figure out where the United States is going, you may want to look at where the U.S. allies are going. Mm. And we know that as the ultra-right surges, they have uh, certain victims in mind. And in North America, a prime victim would be black people. Uh, but of course, this is not inevitable that we will be victimized. But certainly, we should always keep that in mind. Yeah. So that leads me to ask where then you think we are uh, in this present moment vis-a-vis uh, -vis the struggle for black identity. Where are we in that struggle as you see it? Well, I would say we've come a long way. I mean, I think that um, the fact that we're calling ourselves African is a step forward, although I would like to see some meat put on those bones by having our folks pay more attention to what's actually going on in Africa today, uh, particularly trying to understand why it is that so many U.S. officials are traveling to the ancestral continent. The Vice President Harris is in Tanzania as we speak. She was preceded by Secretary of Treasury Yellen in Southern Africa. Anthony Blinken spent so much time there, he probably needs to read a, uh, rent a flat over there. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm not sure if our leaders, our organizations, our intellectuals are paying attention to why that's taking place, paying attention to the contestation on the continent between the United States and China, mm -hmm. paying attention to what the Vice President Harris suggested with regard to the demographic explosion uh, in Africa, which means that the percentage of human beings on planet Earth will be significantly African within coming decades. So uh, I think we're, it's sort of a mixed bag as to where we are with regard to this quest for identity. Mm -hmm. um, are you suggesting, um, and if you are, I'm not sure we are we, we are that far apart on this, uh, and you're right, it doesn't get talked about often enough, but when it comes to the, uh, if I could put it this way, the recolonization of Africa, 
Um, do you sense at the moment that the U.S., given all these increased trips that you referenced a moment ago by U.S. officials, uh, is it your sense that we are sort of in a, how might I put this, a proxy war with China over Africa? Well, it's not just China. It's also uh, Russia. You know, <laughs> the mm-hmm. foreign minister of Russia spends quite a bit of time in Africa as well, including places like Burundi, where U.S. officials have not visited perhaps for years, perhaps ever. Uh, the country that we used to call Turkey uh, spends a lot of time in Islamic Africa, particularly Somalia, where it's basically the power behind the throne, executing tasks from protecting the airport to disposing of garbage spending a lot of time in Senegal, a heavily Islamic uh, country in West Africa. India has a lot of our irons in the fire with regard to Africa, not least because a significant percentage of the population on the Indian Ocean coast, uh, from Kenya, Mombasa, down to Durban in South Africa, or South Asian or Indian descent. And Africa is awash in natural resources, particularly petroleum and natural gas and gold and platinum, resources necessary for the green economy that will be emerging in the 21st century. So uh, that is one of the reasons why you have U.S. officialdom spending so much time on the continent, and that's one of the reasons you have uh, others spending Mm -hmm. so much time on the continent. You used the F word earlier in this conversation. No, not that F word. We would never allow that on this station. But you used the other F word moments ago, uh, fascism. Uh, it is, again, a word that appears in the, the subtitle of your most recent book. I want to probe this notion of fascism. Uh, as you know, President Biden used the F word uh, some weeks back and uh, got in all kind of trouble for just using the word itself. I want to take your uh, temperature on that and get your sense of uh, where we are with regard to uh uh, U.S. fascism. And uh, you mentioned earlier uh, your forthcoming book. I'm going to go right to that forthcoming book. It's called Revolting Capital. That's C-A-P-I-T-A-L. Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C. We'll talk about that as well. A great deal more to cover with Dr. Gerald Horn when we come forward after news, traffic, and sports. We thank you for listening right now to KBLA Talk 15. In a righteous range, and don't be afraid to say what you see. For KBLA Talk 1580. Continue our conversation now with esteemed historian and author, Dr. Gerald Horn, as we are uh, trying to figure out whether or not these present-day social movements and progressive politics, which we ain't got to yet, we'll get there, um, can in fact affect meaningful change in the ongoing fight to one day make this nation a nation that can be, will be, might be, ought be, as good as it's promised. To my mind, there's a huge gulf, a huge divide still between the promise of America and the possibilities in America for every one of her citizens. Uh, We'll talk about that divide as well as we move through this hour. Uh, But as I promised uh, a moment ago before news, traffic, and sports, I want to come to these two things right quick. His most recent text and his forthcoming text. His most recent text uh, has uh, the phrase U.S. fascism in its subtitle. Um, President Joe Biden used that F word some weeks back, um, uh, Dr. Horn, as you'll recall, and he caught it for using that word. How did you read the pushback to his use of the word? And more importantly, how do you read the moment that we are in regarding the F word? Well, I think he received pushback from the people who were trying to intentionally or not bring us to fascism. Mm -hmm. That is to say he received pushback from Republican right, the Trumpistas, from those like Governor DeSantis, etc. Uh, they would prefer that we not be awake or woke, but actually asleep, so that they could better uh, devise their evil deeds and evil plans. Mm-hmm. So I find it curious, just looking at, at myself, that 
I'm oftentimes invited, for lack of a better term, to predominantly white institutions, University of Colorado, University of Houston, to speak on fascism. But none of the historically black colleges and universities have yet to invite me to do so, even though uh, black people ultimately would be the primary victim if that nightmare uh, is to arise. Uh, I find that quite curious. Um, I can see why, on the one hand, you'd find it curious. Let me me just play devil's advocate. On the other hand, um, not that black folk cannot learn from you or any other brilliant uh, black historian, um, but what do you think they're missing by not hearing the presentation, um, given that we live this every day? I don't think that students at Howard or Texas Southern or FAMU or um, any other HBCU would be surprised by your presentation. They're, they're aware of that. They, they know we're living in this uh, madness every day. So tell me why you find it curious. Well, because even though this is madness every day, fascism would involve a gigantic leap backwards. Right. It would involve the acceleration of existing trends, right. existing trends being police terror, existing trends being the death penalty, etc. And the question is, how do you prepare for that? Uh, how do you keep that nightmare from arising? Uh, that's what I find right. curious, because some of the people who are inviting me, uh, I guess they feel that in, in some ways, uh, Black people will be the initial victims, and therefore they'll see what's happening and have time to prepare to get out of Dodge or otherwise. Yeah. So let, let, let me let me invoke the word you used a moment ago, curious. What I find curious is that the good white folk are inviting you to their campuses to talk about fascism. Um, how, how, how do you read that? I mean, I'm encouraged by it. I'm, I'm glad to know that they, that they want to hear from a black historian, but how do you read that the good white folk are inviting you? Well, to, to be fair, oftentimes they're being spurred by black studies departments. <laughs> so. Yeah, see, so so you're not you're not being invited by HBCUs, but at least the black folk on the PWIs are pushing those PWIs to invite you there. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I, I have no illusions about that. Right, right, right. Um, Again, you raise this. I want to follow you on this right quick here and move move forward. Um, what what is your 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 take? What is your read on this anti woke rhetoric that we're getting? You've mentioned DeSantis three or four times now. He ain't the only one. But what's your read in this moment of uh, of all this anti woke rhetoric? Well, obviously, they prefer the opposite. They prefer for us to be asleep. Right. Quite frankly. Right. I mean, it, 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 it's it's cruelly obvious. Of what they have in mind. Uh, what's disturbing is that this anti-woke movement, so-called, has gained so much traction. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it's so transparent, uh, what Governor DeSantis and his acolytes are trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. The flip side of the anti-woke movement are those movements, those social movements now that we've been assessing in this hour, uh, vis-a-vis whether or not they are, um, how might I put it, pregnant with the kind of power that it's going to take the kind of progressive power it's going to take uh, to move this country forward in the, in the weeks, months and years ahead. You suggested earlier in this conversation uh, that these current movements, whatever they may be, uh, are disconnected from what you call global currents. Take a moment to unpack that for me. Well, I look at the movement against police terror. I mean, there have been individual cases such as the family of Michael Brown, the slain Ferguson, Missouri teenager, uh, them going to the United Nations Human Rights Council in Geneva, Switzerland, and campaigning, the International Association of Jurists 
uh, has done human rights investigations of the United States, uh, which has in- involved the participation of many black lawyers uh, and jurists and-, and legal workers. But uh, I don't see any sort of consistent structural organizational uh, campaign with mass heft in order to push that forward. But it's not an indictment, I should say, of the activists, because if you look at the anti-Jim Crow movement, one of the points that historians have been stressing of late is that that movement was propelled in no small measure by the assistance from labor unions, particularly the United Auto Workers. But as you know, more than most, United Auto Workers of late has fallen upon hard times. They've lost tens of thousands of members. And so it's difficult for them to be the sponsor of these kinds of social movements. So it, it's a mixed bag altogether. Yep. Um, I want to talk about progressive politics. Um, and as I work my way into that, you, you give me something else that I want to uh, uh, get you to, to uh, uh, speak on right quick before we get to progressive politics writ large. And that is labor unions. You, uh, again, just referenced that. We just saw here in L.A. the success uh, of the labor movement, uh, namely SEIU uh, 99, Local 99. Uh, the whole country saw, of course, the second largest school district in the nation. Uh, they saw the strike with the teachers and other uh, support staff, cafeteria workers, et cetera, et cetera, uh, janitors and all of those persons represented by SEIU 99. They saw that three-day strike, and at the end of the strike, a deal um, was struck with LAUSD, Los Angeles Unified School District. So here's an example, uh, a recent example of the success of uh, of a particular union flexing. But as you well know, the labor movement, uh, to, the, to the minds of many, is uh, – itself, broadly speaking, on life support. Since you raised labor unions, what's your read of the status of labor unions in this country? Well, once again, it's a mixed bag. I I take my hat off uh, to the Service Employees International Union and other uh, members of the L.A. County Federation of Labor who were able to uh, reach a kind of success with regard to that strike of tens of thousands of workers against the uh, LAUSD Unified School District. And I take off my hat to the unions in the state of Michigan, uh, a bellwether of the union movement because of the auto industry being cited there and the United Auto Workers being cited there just in Lansing, the state capital. Mm-hmm. They've been able to push through uh, pro-worker legislation that will benefit many black people since we're mostly working class. But uh, at the same time, in Washington, at the federal level, it's been difficult to push through that same kind of legislation just pushed through in Michigan. Uh, in Washington, just yesterday, we had the spectacle of Howard Schultz, the founder of Starbucks, mm-hmm. uh, stonewalling Senator Sanders, uh, who was pressing him on anti-worker maneuvers by that uh, coffee chain. And uh, Mr. Schultz was unapologetic and probably will not suffer uh, as a result, sadly enough. Mm-hmm. Um, to your point now about uh, the tete-a-tete yesterday between Howard Schultz and Senator Bernie Sanders, um, when you look through your prism at the status of the progressive wing of the American political system, the American political process, assess that for me, the state of progressive politics in America. has a long way to go. I mean, the, the fact that... In the spring of 2023, we cannot dismiss the possibility out of hand that the 45th U.S. president will become the 47th U.S. president. 
in a sense, is an indictment uh, of the progressive movement, the fact that we have not been able to develop a platform, an analysis, a structure that would prevent that from taking place. But at the same time, once again, on the local level, we've had victories, and you know about the victory, of course, in Mm -hmm. Los Angeles, the mayor's race, uh, Congresswoman Karen Bass, and uh, I expect a victory in Chicago for the mayor's race there, uh, for Brandon Johnson, for example. But uh, there's potential, but as you know, potential means you haven't done it yet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Brandon Johnson was a guest on this program earlier this week, uh, his second appearance here. We had him on the day before the election in Chicago uh, and uh, predicted he'd be one of the top two finishers. Indeed, he was. And he returned this week uh, to honor us for our prediction <laughs> and had a great conversation uh, with him literally days ago this week. If you missed that conversation, check out our podcast, uh, our talk with Brandon Johnson, who could be the next brother mayor of the city of Chicago. As you know, presently, uh, the mayors of the four largest cities in this country are all African-American. Uh, Sylvester Turner in Houston, uh, Lori Lightfoot on her way out, of course, in Chicago, uh, Eric Adams in New York City, and uh, the aforementioned Karen Bass here in Los Angeles. And if Brandon, this young brother, a school teacher, uh, Cook County Commissioner, if Brandon Johnson can pull this off in Chicago, uh, then we would uh, retain that streak of the four largest cities uh, being helmed by African-American mayors. When we come forward, uh, I want to come back. <laughs> we'll come forward and then we'll come back to this question. Um, this issue that Dr. Horn uh, addresses a moment ago, uh, as he sees it, uh, the the possibility that uh, the 45th president, as he calls him, could be the 47th president is in and of itself, that reality in and of itself, as he sees it, is an indictment on the progressive movement in this country. Uh, you heard him invoke the word potential, which means we ain't quite there yet. I want to get into that a bit more when we come forward. Dr. Gerald Horn, who you're listening to right now on KBLA Talk 1580. Dr. Gerald Horn, tell me more about why and how you see um, uh, the the fact that the 45th president could indeed be the 47th president as an indictment of progressives. Well, in order to operate politically and organize, you need an analysis. And the progressive movement thus far has not been able to develop an analysis that might explain that, that stunning rally in Waco, Texas, just a few days ago. Mm where thousands upon thousands showed up, uh, many in the working class, many in the middle class, uh, to cheer on the 45th U.S. president. And I think that there's a shying away from looking at uh, how this country was built with a kind of alliance between poor Europeans and richer Europeans. Many of our progressive friends would prefer to stress the class question, which tends to draw a wall between the poor and the richer Europeans. But uh, obviously, Waco showed that that's a flawed analysis. But uh, speaking of which, uh, one of the things that's been bothering me that perhaps you can answer is I've noticed that in the Chicago mayor's race, Congressman or former Congressman Bobby Rush Mm -hmm. is not supporting Brandon. This is the former leader of the Black Panther Party, Mm -hmm. uh, the only man really to defeat Barack Obama in an electoral race, a race when Barack ran for Congress. Is, is it personal that he doesn't like Brandon? Is it that he's losing his fastball? Or I, I just don't understand. Let me say this. Um, I did not, uh, first of all, I, I love the fact that, um, uh, again, you're a historian, so you, you're keeping your eyes on the ball, pardon the pun, uh, on a variety of fronts across the country. So Brandon and I um, did not get into this in our conversation the other day. Uh, but you put your finger on something that's worth interrogating. Let's do it right quick. Um 
I've had I've, I have that same question, and I have other questions. I am disturbed uh, by what I'm watching in the city of Chicago vis-a-vis these endorsements. So that Bernie Sanders, uh, Senator Warren in Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren, uh, and others who are more progressive have gotten behind Brandon Johnson, this young brother in Chicago. But he's running against a white guy, Paul Vallis. Uh, Mr. Vallis uh, has been endorsed uh, by a number of people, including uh, Senator Dick Durbin um, uh, in, in, uh, out of Illinois and others who are lining up. Uh, I don't have the list in front of me, but I was reading the other day, prepping for my talk with Brandon. Uh, again, we didn't get to this particular issue. He'll be back on again, and we'll get to it. And again, I don't want to give it too much, uh, give it too much uh, airtime because I don't want people to focus on his detractors uh, as opposed to those who are supporting him. But it, but there's a legitimate question to be interrogated as to why this young brother in Chicago is not getting the kind of support. Now he's gotten, you know, again I mentioned those names, Jesse Jackson and others who are behind him. But there is something to use your word earlier in this conversation. Curious, there's something curious about this uh, mayor's race in Chicago. And why some of these persons are not lining up behind Brandon Johnson. I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, and when he's on again, I will put it directly to him. Uh, but you and I are noticing uh, sort of the same thing. Let, let me close with uh, let, me, let me close this 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 particular piece uh, with this and ask you right quickly watching my clock here. Um, how is what we saw in Waco, Texas the other day with, with, with the 45th president, as you refer to him? Um, how is that an indictment of progressives, but not necessarily an indictment of white supremacy and the way it works in this country. Why indict one side but not the other? <laughs> it's an indictment of both. Okay. I mean, it's an indictment of the president, who, by the way, was criticized on praising the January 6, 2021 insurrectionists. Recall that they began the rally with the choir uh-huh. of some of the prisoners who they see as political prisoners. Recall that. Congresswoman uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene had led a delegation into the jail in Washington claiming that they're being maltreated and mistreated. And for those who were in Washington on Capitol Hill on January 6, 2021, who saw the gallows set up for those who were clamoring to hang Mike Prince, that was a bridge too far. But certainly, it's an indictment of white supremacy, clearly, obviously. Uh, But once again, what we need is some sort of historical analysis that would explain why that particular toxin has sunk its poison so intensely into yeah. the bloodstream of so many Euro-Americans across class lines. Yeah. And we don't necessarily have a popular analysis that explains that. That is the answer I anticipated uh, and expected. Just wanted to ask that question because many of my progressive friends can be a little sensitive (laughs) these days uh, and wanted to make sure that they heard you say uh, that both sides, of course, are to be indicted in what uh, uh, the wackiness that we saw in Waco, Texas the other day. Our remaining moments with Dr. Gerald Horn when we come forward, I want to ask him uh, into the future whether or not he can see a moment where we will see a shrinking Uh, of the gulf, the wide gulf between the promise of America and the possibilities in America for every one of our citizens. You're listening to KBLA Talk. Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now. now. There's two two minutes left here with Dr. Gerald Horn. Dr. Horn, these last two minutes, um, uh, can you see, can you imagine, look in your crystal ball, are we headed toward a day uh, where we will see a shrinking of this divide between the promise of America and the possibilities in America? I think it's possible, but 
um, given the current trends, the fact that, as noted, the 45th U.S. president has a, a credible path back to power by January 2025, that should sober us all and should uh, help to puncture any illusions that we may have that we're on the right track. But once again, uh, we're not out of the game yet. We have not been defeated as of yet. Otherwise, we would not be talking about Brandon Johnson. We would not be talking about Karen Bass. We would not be talking about the victory of the workers in the school system of Los Angeles, etc. So it's going to be a difficult struggle, and I remain optimistic, although I refuse to be naive. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think, uh, speaking of the 45th president, uh, who may be the 47th again, as you mentioned a few times, um, do you think that any of these indictments potentially will trip him up along the way? Oh, clearly, clearly, especially the one coming out of the Justice Department with Counsel Jack Smith over the Mar-a-Lago documents. Uh, with regard to the case coming out of Atlanta with Fannie Willis, the Fulton County prosecutor, a black woman who happens to be the daughter, as you know, of the founder of the L.A. Black Panther Party, uh, John Floyd. Mm-hmm. Uh, the legislature in Atlanta, in Georgia, is moving to clip her wings. So it's too soon to tell whether or not her case will go forward. And the kind of intimidation that he's using against the Manhattan D.A., a black man, Al Bragg, is, is just incredible. Uh, that tweeting of a photo with Mr. Trump holding a baseball bat uh, close to a picture of Mr. Bragg's head was was quite startling. However, the Mar-a-Lago case, I think, might trip him up, but Mr. Trump feels that uh, this will only convince his base that they're out to get him. Yep. Uh, I think you're right. Um, I know you're right. He will use it to his advantage, as he always does. Dr. Gerald Horn, good to have you on, sir. We'll do it again. Thank you for your time. We appreciate you. Thank you. When we come forward after news, traffic, and sports, Monique is back with a stand-up comedy special on Netflix. It premieres Tuesday night. Monique for the hour. In a moment on KBLA Talk 1580.